let's see. So we were talking about the fact the, the names of God, why we describe them in certain ways. And the reason that the <coughs> we use the name God of Abraham, God of Isaac, and dweller of Zion, dweller of Jerusalem, these are all references to manifestations of Hashem in this world. In other words, the there is a certain element of how Hashem's godliness is more manifest in some of the great our great patriarchs and matriarchs. And there's an element of how Hashem is more manifest in, in the land of Israel, right? So let's go down to page uh, 215 and number 51. The Kuzari said, this last section of some scripture has certainly departed greatly from the way we would expect God to be described. Let's go back for a moment. I'm sorry. So while we were reading this, we were not the impetus for God when he took us out of Egypt and chose us. Rather, God initiated our exodus from Egypt so that he could be our, we could be his elite nation and he could be our king. Scripture states this in several places, such as I am the Lord, your God, who took you out of Egypt in order to be a God for you. And Israel, through you, I shall be glorified. So the Khazari now is the, the Khazarian king is going to kind of pounce on this idea and say, I don't understand this. How could you say that God is glorified through the Jewish people? This flowery prose seems to have taken liberties with God's honor and suggesting that God glorifies himself through human beings. It's a very powerful question. The rabbi asked, would it have been any easier for you to accept if scripture had said God is glorified through his creation of the son? The Gazari said yes, because of its exalted role. The son is second only to God in causing the world to function. It is because of the sun that daytime and nighttime and days and seasons are organized as they are. Minerals, plants, and living creatures exist thanks to it. And it is only through the sun's bright light that objects are visible. How then could its existence not be a source of glory for its maker from man's perspective, right? So it's an important point, a very important qualifier that he adds over there, right? When you talk about something that is glorifies something else or is a source of glory for something else, it's very important to modify that statement and say that that's all from the perspective of the people, of the onlookers, right? So from the perspective of Hashem, I don't even know what that means to be that Hashem is glorified through something else. It doesn't even it doesn't even mean anything, right? So we have to talk about it from the perspective of man. So from our perspective, living on earth, <coughs> what the sun is able to accomplish is a, a glorious sign of Hashem's presence in this world, that the creator created this system through the sun and through the moon and through the tides and through all of the different elements of how the earth exists and is perfectly positioned that it could actually have the right amount of sunlight and not too much sunlight, not too little sunlight and so on and so forth. That is, that is something beautiful. That is something glorious. The rabbi said, is not the light of the heart finer and more exalted than the visible light of the sun? All people were blind and wandered aimlessly before the advent of the Jewish nation, with the exception of those individuals previously mentioned. During this time, one nation believed that there is no creator. It's wise men stated, that every component of the universe is equal and static, so that no component is any more prone to having been created than having created others. Thus, everything has always existed as it exists now. Another nation believed that the earth was here first and created everything else, and therefore they worshiped the earth. Others erred in believing that all light and other powerful and wondrous phenomena are a product of fire, and thus fire are worthy of being, is worthy of being worshipped. Fire, they believed, is the basic ingredient of the soul. Another nation worshipped other gods, such as the sun, the moon, the stars, and the signs of the zodiac. Another nation worshipped their kings or wise men. All of these nations agree that no miracle that departed from nature and normalcy could ever occur. Right? So the, the common denominator of all of these different nations' religions were based on something 
in inside of the world as we understand and recognize it, right? Inside of nature, right? And that nature is as it is, and then no deviation can occur. And this led to their belief system of what exactly they're going to worship. Now, but the light of the heart is indeed finer and more exalted than the visible light of the sun, right? And we're going to use that as our, as our lever. These fallacious beliefs evolved until the days of the philosophers, who, because of their careful investigations and clear thinking, admitted that there exists a prime clause, which is unlike anything else. Their intellectual reasoning, however, caused them to deviate and conclude that this prime cause has nothing to do with this world, let alone with any component of this world. It is too exalted to be mindful of what is going on here, they reasoned, and it would certainly never introduce any miraculous phenomenon into the world. So although they are able to recognize a prime cause, and although they're able to recognize perhaps even that the prime cause created the world, right? That would be somewhat of a debate amongst the philosophers, but there'd be a potential for that belief system. However, they do not believe that this prime cause is actually connected to this world at all, or we're of what we lowly humans do, or in the concept of reward and punishment. The darkness continued until this community of Israel was purified. They were then worthy of having the divine light rest upon them and of having wondrous miracles performed and nature altered for them. Through these miracles, it became visibly evident that the world has a ruler, guardian, organizer, and creator, and that he knows everything about this world, small matters and large alike, and that he rewards good and punishes evil. Now, I just want to point out what one of the ways in which this is very clear. The Torah tells us that Jethro, right, Moshe's father-in-law, comes to visit Moshe. And he comes to visit Moshe after the splitting of the sea, before the incident at, at Har Sinai, before the, the divine revelation at Har Sinai. And the reason why he comes is partially to bring Moshe's uh, wife and sons back to him, right, from Midian. But he also comes because he has heard of the great wondrous things that Hashem has done. But then when Moshe proceeds to describe <coughs> exactly the way in which Hashem saved them from the Egyptian threat, and that Hashem had the Egyptians corner them at the sea, and then have the Egyptians actually end up drowning in the very sea in which they thought they were going to capture the Jews. What Yisro says is, now I know that your Hashem is the true God. Why? That which the Egyptians had intended to do to the Jewish people ended up becoming their own downfall. What does this mean? This means that the Egyptian king, the Pharaoh, had passed a decree that all Jewish children should be thrown, all Jewish male children, and then at a later point, some point, even the Jewish um, girls as well, should be thrown into the river, right? He wanted to eradicate the Jewish people, genocide, right? And how was he going to do that? Through water. Then later, they, they corner the Jewish people by the sea. They think they have them captured, and they're going to run them into the water. Instead, the Jewish people escape through the water, and then the Egyptians themselves die with the water, Right? In, in uh, Shakespeare's language, we would say hoisted by his own petar, right? In other words, the very thing that he planned for someone else ends up becoming his own downfall. Now, how does that exhibit the presence of Hashem in this world? Well, the reason is very simple. It shows that Hashem is mindful of exactly what that nation intended to do over the ages. And therefore, he punished them with karma, right? Using karma, so to speak, right? Punishing them exactly what they deserved, given what their intentions were to do to the Jewish people. So that exhibited a tremendous manifestation, awareness, mindfulness, reward and punishment, all in one fell swoop, on a level that perhaps had not even been understood or exhibited even throughout the plagues. And that's the impetus for Yisro, for Jethro, to say, you know what, now I'm going to convert to Judaism. This community was therefore the cause for people's hearts being rectified. All the nations who arose after them cannot divorce themselves from the foundation that Israel provided. The result is that today the entire world acknowledges the creation of the universe and admits that the creator antedates anything else. 
Their proof of this is the Jewish people and their history, both the special rewards they received when they were righteous, and unfortunately, the punishments that we receive when we sin, right? Because as it says in the Torah, in Deuteronomy, it says that all the nations of the world will look at us getting punished and look at our terrible exile, and they will say, who is this nation who has done such terrible things that they are worthy of these punishments? They will recognize that this is because Hashem is displeased, disappointed with the behavior of the Jewish people. And that is why we are getting this punishment. But even in the punishment, that itself is a reflection of how close we are to Hashem. That we are under this very, very high level of divine providence. That our punishments are on a completely different scale than anybody else's. Why are our punishments on a different scale? Hashem wants us to get punished in this world, not in the world to come. We prefer to have our punishments in a finite scale and not in the infinite scale of the world to come. And that's why Hashem punishes us in this world. But the nations of the world recognize and say there's something so unique about everything related to the Jewish people that even when they get punished, their punishment is on a completely different scale. And that itself is, once again, is a way of Hashem exhibiting his mastery, his power, his concept of reward and punishment in this world, completely negating the concepts of both the original idolatrous beliefs, right? That it's about the world itself having some sort of a power. There's no such thing as miracles. And then the perhaps a little bit more sophisticated belief of the philosophers that although the world was created or could have been created, might have a prime cause, that prime cause does not concern himself with the minutia of this world. And what Hashem showed then and continues to show now is that absolutely he concerns himself with every single bit of minutia in this world. Okay, we continue tomorrow night. Real, yeah. uh, Dovi, real quick. Um, so when bad things happen to the Jewish people, is, is your always your first approach is we, we must have done something wrong. We don't always know what, but we, so whether it's COVID or the Holocaust, whatever, what tragedy happens to the Jewish people, is that always what we have in mind? Or sometimes we say, we just have no idea what's going on here. We can't explain it. The, 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 the hard, hard answer is that it's really the first, right? And that, that really is the answer. Ultimately, the, the Gemara says this, the Rambam Maimonides makes it clear. He codifies into Jewish law. He says that if someone sees bad things happening to the Jewish people, and kind of denies that there is a divine role in the bad things happening to Jewish people. He is cruel, which is a funny terminology to use. Like, well, why are you saying he is cruel for denying that this comes from God? It doesn't seem cruel. It doesn't seem good. It doesn't seem either. It's just, it's a non sequitur cruel. So the way we understand that is very simple. When Hashem punishes us, he doesn't punish us for, because he's angry, he's aggravated, he's exasperated with our behavior. He's just taking at us and, you know, like a, an abusive parent who just hits the kid for no reason at all. He's punishing us because he wants to issue a corrective behavioral device, right? Through, through this action of punishing us, we'll recognize we're doing something wrong, and then we'll go back to the straight and narrow. If you deny that and you say, oh, that's natural causes, you deny that and you say, oh, that's just, uh, you know, you have to look at, uh, you know, some of the geopolitical considerations that are leading to something like this that happened. There was a depression, there was Weimar, you know, World War I, and all these other things, right? And you can come up with some natural explanations, right? then you're not going to change the behavior, that underlying behavior that allows these conditions to take place, right? So that is the, the worst type of cruelty because what you're going to have to cause is that Hashem is going to have to deal with us in a different way for us to recognize the folly and the error of our ways and then try to get back to the straight and arrow from that recognition, right? You're going to have to be ramped up. But ultimately, that is the answer. That being said, that is not the answer that you give to a Holocaust survivor. Right? That is not the answer that you give when someone comes over with a personal 
you know, struggle or, you know, something, you know, where they lost a, you know, a three-year-old grandchild. You don't say something like that. That's not the answer that one would give. And under those circumstances, that's not the right thing to say at all. Uh, but, but on some sort of a rational level, that is what the, the Jewish philosophy of why do bad things happen to good people, that is ultimately the main concept. Now, to be clear, there could be differences between individuals having a bad thing happen to them as an individual from a different individual. That might not be the same concept. That there might be because of the concept of free will. So what I'm speaking about is more of national scale disaster. Well, how do we define national scale? That's also a question, right? And the, and the Gemara goes through some of what, what we consider national scale. The Gemara tells us if you have a plague in a city with 500 people where there's one person dying per day for three days straight. It's a very specific ratio. And then the ratio can be extrapolated from, right? That is a sign of a divine plague. Less than that, even more on one day, but none the next day, right? That's not the sign of a divine plague. Why? Because there's a concept of sickness, of illness in the world. So that's not a sign of divinity, necessarily, of a divine providence causing this to happen. So the Gemara gets into great, great detail about what, what we define as the type of bad act that we assume is coming because God is allowing it to happen, what type of bad act is not because God allows it to happen. I do believe that something like the Holocaust, I'm not saying I understand it. I'm not saying I you know, personally understand what sort of deeds we could have been doing that were so horrific as to warrant such a terrible corrective you know, action. But that being said, I, I have to believe that because otherwise I have to believe that God deserted us and he didn't desert us. So, so therefore that is the only other option, I think. Yeah. Okay, we'll continue tomorrow night. Take care, good night.